morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right, you guys are still there. Who's here to come? Okay. My name is Esther, and it's good to be here with you today. It's really a privilege that I look forward to to be able to look into God's Word with you all. So the first book I ever remember pulling an all-nighter to finish reading uh, was not a thriller. It was not a mystery. It wasn't even a textbook. It was Pride and Prejudice. Because back then, I had never heard of this book before, and I had to find out if Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy would ever get together. (laughs) Nowadays, it's hard not to have heard of the story. Retellings of it in book and film are legion. Featured here are some of them. The only one you really need to know about is the BBC version with Colin Firth, which I've circled. So, yes. (laughs) So consider that your public service announcement for today. Each of these retell the story with a particular purpose, right? Reframing it as social satire or romance or a story with pirates or dragons or zombies. Yes, there is a Pirates and Prejudice, a Pride and Paper Cuts, presumably an office romance. I don't know what Pride and Prejudice and Aliens is about, and I'm a little afraid to find that out. So we're in a series entitled Signs of Life, in which we're studying the book of John. Now, by the time John wrote his gospel, people weren't hearing the story of Jesus for the first time. In all likelihood, they already had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So instead of giving a mere recounting of facts, John can choose to retell certain events for a specific purpose. Consider the fact that Jesus did at least 37 specific miracles that we know of from the first three Gospels. John picks only seven of them, and he calls them signs because he wants them to point to something. He tells us, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These signs point to the reality of who Jesus is and how we can have life in him. So we'll examine both those things as we look today at the fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000, found in John chapter 6, if you want to start turning or tapping your way there. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that is recorded in all four Gospels. And today, I want to ask this. How does the unique way in which John retells this story point us to who Jesus is and how to have life in him? First, who Jesus is. For those who like to track along, we'll look at prophecy and provision. Secondly, how to have life in him, we'll discuss surrender and sustenance. So before our story begins, Jesus has just sent his 12 disciples on missions throughout Galilee, that whole area in the darker vanilla color. This resulted in many healings that made Jesus so popular that he and his disciples end up crossing the Sea of Galilee by boat along that red arrow to its less populated east bank to try to get some R&R, where that red star is near the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds get wind of this and run around the north side of the lake to meet them along the purple arrows, probably gathering more and more people along the way. 
Jesus ends up teaching them in that desolate wilderness all day long. And our story begins at the end of that day when it's now evening and no one in their rush has apparently brought anything to eat. Let's look at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And as we read, I've highlighted in blue the parts that are unique to John, that are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So we can be thinking about what John in particular is pointing out about Jesus. John 6, 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Okay, so first, what do we learn here about who Jesus is? I love fantasy stories, and many of them have prophecies about a chosen one, whether it's one who will bring balance to the force in Star Wars, or one who will have power the Dark Lord knows not in Harry Potter, or my favorite prophecy, which begins... All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost, and ends, renewed shall be blay that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. (laughs) That one's about Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. Prophecies affect how we see things. So instead of thinking, there's a guy with a fancy necklace who wanders around looking like he could use a shower, but swings a sword pretty good, we're like, There's the lost heir wearing the even star who's wielding the forged blade to reunite the kingdom of men. Do we have a photo? Yes, there he is. Thank you. My work now is done. Going to let Aragorn take it from here. Just kidding. John is the only one to show us the response of the crowd. And they aren't like, hey, this guy can do cool tricks with bread. They're like, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, exclamation mark. Why? Because they thought in terms of prophecies. Those words are in allusion to Deuteronomy 18, in which Moses says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. 
See, the Israelites were looking for a chosen one, a Messiah who would be like Moses and other great prophets from their history. And John tells this story in just such a way to make it clear that Jesus is that Messiah, that he is that new Moses and the new Elisha. Moses' first miracle in Egypt was to change water into blood. Moses leads the people in the first Passover, goes up a mountain in the wilderness where the people are taught the law and receive manna to eat. For Jesus' first sign, John chooses the transformation of water. John tells us here that it's the Passover, mentioning grass to remind us that it's spring, the season of Passover. John describes Jesus going up a mountain in the wilderness to teach the people and miraculously provide bread to eat. In the beginning of 2 Kings, we read that the prophet Elisha also defeats a foreign power, the Moabites, by causing them to see water as blood. He then takes 20 loaves of barley, and after his servant says, how can this be enough for 100 men, Elisha multiplies the bread so it feeds them all with some left over. John alone mentions that the loaves Jesus multiplies are also made of barley, and he uses the same word for boy that describes Elisha's servant. John makes it clear that Jesus is the new and greater Elisha who multiplies not 20 loaves for 100, but five loaves for thousands because there are no limits to his power to provide. Jesus is the new and greater Moses who not only leads his people to physical life, but himself dies to give them eternal life. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah. And that Messiah is someone who comes to provide. John goes into detail to point out how little people had in this story and how great their need was. Whatever you're picturing as the five loaves and two fish, make it smaller. The loaves mentioned here don't refer to the kind of bakery loaf we might imagine today, but something more like a dinner roll or biscuit. John tells us they are barley loaves. Barley was the grain of the poorer classes because it was much cheaper to buy than wheat. This was the most ordinary, unremarkable kind of food. And the word translated fish here is not the usual word for fish swimming in the water, but one that means a side dish, which back then were usually little pickled fish, presumably included to make the barley loaves more palatable. No wonder, Andrew says, what is this for so many? That's what little they had. Now think about how great their need was. We're told there were 5,000 men present, but that was a way of counting heads of households. If you included the women, children, and single men, the total number of people would be closer to 15 to 20,000. Like, I don't know how many of us have ever been in a crowd of that size, but here's a shot from the TV series The Chosen when they depicted this event, just to give you a sense. It's a lot of people. The contrast between supply and need here is preposterous. That's why Philip never answers Jesus' question. Did you notice that? Jesus only asks one question in this whole story. He asks Philip, where are we to buy bread? Philip would have been the obvious person to ask because he was from the nearby town of Bethsaida. Jesus is asking about the source of provision, 
But Philip doesn't answer the question because he can't get past the immensity of their need. 200 denarii was about eight months' wages at that time. So Philip is basically saying, look at all these people. Even a ton of money would not be enough. Andrew saw the inadequacy of what they had. Philip saw the inadequacy of what they didn't have. The point is none of it was enough. But that's exactly when Jesus does his sign. All of his signs deal with suffering, whether it's disease, death, thirst, or in this case, hunger. Because these signs aren't just naked demonstrations of power. Like There were probably lots of flashier ways Jesus could have done that. No, these signs are not just naked demonstrations of power. They show us what Jesus came to use that power to do, to restore brokenness. Here, Jesus provides enough for everyone to eat their fill with 12 baskets left over. And let me ask you, what kind of provision is John pointing to here? Is he saying, if we follow Jesus, we'll get free food? That sounds pretty good, actually. I still daydream about the time I visited the Facebook campus and saw their cafeteria. I was like, woo, I went into the wrong profession. But the thing about food, right, is that no matter how much you eat, no matter how good it is, you'll get hungry again. That's why some of the people end up following Jesus the next day for more free food. That's when Jesus tells them they're missing the point. He says later in this chapter, I am the bread of life. That's the ultimate answer to the question he asked Philip, where are we to buy bread? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Just like the seven signs, John is going to record Jesus saying seven I am statements, seven truths that some of these signs point to. And this is the first of those truths. Jesus is himself the bread of life. Jesus is not just the provider, he is himself the provision. That's the point of the miracle. That's what all the prophecies were really about. Jesus is himself the Passover lamb, which dies so its blood may cover us, and so its flesh may be eaten by us. He is himself the heavenly manna and the humble barley loaf, broken apart so that we can have eternal life, and the satisfying of the deepest hunger of our souls. What do you hunger for? What is the thing under all the things that you seek? What is it you truly long for? Is it a certain identity or a sense of worth? Is it freedom from fear or anxiety? Maybe it's a longing to know that you are loved or to feel truly seen. You know, I think for a large part of my life, I had this unspoken belief that I would find all those things once I arrived, once I got into my school of choice, or met my husband, or finished my training, or got some recognition, or lost that weight, or acquired a house. Like, once I arrived, everything would finally be great, and I would be satisfied. But what I found is that arriving is an illusion. 
Like I got there only to find that no one ever really arrives. They just keep going for the next thing. And believe me, there's always a next thing. Because none of those things really satisfy in the end. They're like the physical bread that people ate. It feels good for a while, but in the end, you get hungry again. Jesus says, don't stop at the bread. Like, don't stop and camp out under the sign. See what that sign is pointing you to. It points to this hunger inside you that only Jesus can satisfy. Jesus says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Do you believe that? John is inviting us to believe that, to believe in the prophesied Messiah who provides. We've been saying in this series that in the book of John, belief is an ongoing action. So that leads to our second question. How do we live into a belief that Jesus provides? How do we experience that life in him? The first thing John's sign points to is that a life of provision begins with surrender. A life of provision begins with surrender. We know from the very first verse of John that Jesus was there at creation. So Jesus is perfectly capable of making something out of nothing. Yet here, he doesn't just conjure food out of thin air. He uses what we have, even if it's not a lot. Jesus invites us to live into our belief in him through surrender. Surrender is counterintuitive for us. Most of us are better at striving than at surrendering because our society is obsessed with acquisition, buying more, making more, saving more, being more. But the great lesson of this story is that what matters is not the sufficiency of what we have, but our willingness to surrender all that we do have to God. What matters is not how much we have, but our willingness to surrender whatever we have to God. And we see here that surrender is both active and passive. Sometimes it's active. Like, look at how much active work there is here. Someone took the time, energy, and money to prepare and pack the food. The boy carried it all the way into the wilderness. The disciples organized the crowds, carried the baskets, distributed the food. But notice how this active work is being done. It is being done in faithfulness to Jesus' instructions, not to someone's personal ambitions. It's done with an open-handedness about both the process and the results. It is being done as an expression of belief, not in the work itself, but in who Jesus is. Like the boy isn't surrendering his meal because he trusts in the food. He does it because something about Jesus' teaching that day makes him believe in who Jesus is, and this is the acting out of that belief. This is him saying, Jesus, this doesn't seem like enough, and as far as food goes, it's not very impressive. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but take what I have. I want to give it to you. I am doing this for you, and I am leaving the results to you. That can be our prayer, too. Surrender can also be passive. Henry Nowen was a priest who shared a story of a visit he made once to a friend in the hospital. This friend was a man in his 50s who had been diagnosed with cancer. 
he said to Nguyen, you know, I used to be such an active person. My life was valuable because I was able to do many things for people. Help me to understand how to have meaning now that I can't do anything, now that all sorts of people are doing things to me that I can't control. And no one thought about the passion of Jesus, about the moment when Jesus was handed over to his betrayer. Everything before that point in Jesus' ministry was active. Jesus was traveling, healing, speaking. But after that point, Jesus becomes one to whom things are being done. He's arrested, tried, crowned, nailed. In other words, Jesus accomplishes his work not only by doing all the things he wants to do, but also by allowing things to be done to him that needed to be done to fulfill his vocation. The same can be true for us. There can be an experience of God's provision that happens by allowing ourselves to be acted upon. Consider the experience of most people in this story. You have the boy and the 12 disciples moving around, maybe a few others who jumped in to help. But most of the thousands of people there had to wait, to wait through the very long time it must have taken to distribute food to everyone. Some of them could have gotten up and left. Those who stayed did nothing but sit on the grass, waiting and wandering and suffering their hunger, being acted upon while Jesus was working out his miracle. This Lenten season, what is it you are surrendering? Is it your work, your hopes, your timeline? Is it your past or your future? Is it those things you love and value most? Or perhaps it's something you fear or worry about? What is it God may be asking you or asking us as a church to surrender? What does it mean to do that surrender, not as some form of passive resignation, but as an acting out of our belief in the God who provides? How can you identify with Jesus in both his action and in his passion through your surrender? The second thing John Sign points to is that a life of provision continues through sustenance. A life of provision continues through sustenance. So the people don't surrender to find themselves empty-handed. Jesus gives them bread, and they must live into their belief in Jesus by eating that bread. So eating is a process that is so automatic that most of us don't think about it. But I'll tell you, when I first really thought about it, and surprisingly, it wasn't during the gastrointestinal unit in med school, it was when I tried to feed a baby I still remember feeding our kids solid food for the first time. It was this disgusting mix of reconstituted baby cereal and breast milk. Like I'd scoop that stuff in their mouths and they'd just go, like, what are you doing to me, mother? While all the food just dribbled down their adorable multiple chins. Sometimes we have to learn to eat. Like we have to trust in what we need to nourish ourselves. Bread doesn't do any good if you look at it, if you talk about it, think about it, read about it. You have to break it apart and ingest it to have life. 
Like, you can sit here and we can pontificate about Jesus all we like. You can come to church every Sunday and hear about him. But you won't have life unless you feed on him, unless you find your sustenance in him. Feeding on Jesus means receiving him by faith, seeing him as not just a provider, but your provider, absorbing and connecting with him so that he becomes a part of you, so that you draw your strength from him, so that you find your delight in him, and it's being changed inside to outside as a result. We do this in many ways through feeding on his word, through contemplation in his presence, through seeing him in another person, through conversation and prayer, through musical worship, through tears and laments and more. The fact is we all feed on something. We all look to something for sustenance, to get us through the day, to give us the energy and direction and delight that we need for a full life. Is that Jesus for you? What would it look like for him to be your sustenance? We've seen today that the feeding of the 5,000 points us to Jesus as the prophesied Messiah who provides eternal life as the bread of life. We live into that life of provision through surrender and through looking to Jesus for our sustenance. Our story today happens during Passover, while the very next Passover after this one happens the night before Jesus dies. That night, Jesus again takes bread and uses it to redefine the Passover meal. He says this bread used to be what you ate to remember how quickly your forefathers fled Egypt, but now this bread represents my body broken for you. This wine represents the new covenant, which is my blood poured out for you. That's why we as a church don't eat the Passover meal anymore. We take communion instead. In our story, there were 12 baskets of leftovers gathered, a number which reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel and symbolizes the complete restoration of God's people, gathered in that not one may be lost. Today on the communion tables, we have fragments of bread gathered into plates, bowl plates, which we are invited to gather in and eat as one body in Christ. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And whenever you are ready, you are welcome to come to the table where you'll find a variety of options for bread, wine, and juice. You're invited to get the elements and return to your seats to take them. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word for your precious word. We thank you that John gave us the sign that points us to you as the bread of life. And God, we just pray together with the man who said, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We believe, help our unbelief. God, I pray that you would show us what it means to surrender ourselves to you through joining you in your action and also in your passion. We pray that you would show us what it means to find our sustenance in you. We thank you so much for this time. Would you continue to reveal yourself to us 
as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we pray.